Hi, I'm Nichols, author of the book, How to Catch a Fish. Today, we are going to discuss fishing on Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today, we have episode 344 for October 2nd, 2023. And as I've been promising for some weeks now, we're going to be talking with Nick Oles. And he wrote a really cool little book called How to Catch a Fish. And of course, on this show, fish is spelled P-H-I-S-H. And it's all about fishing, what it is, and how you recognize it, and how to protect yourself from it. So we're going to dig into that today in our interview with Nick. Real quick, before we get into the interview, however, a couple quick things. First of all, for my patrons, and perhaps for some of you out there who are considering becoming patrons, uh, I have a book club uh, that we use to read books on security and privacy. And I try, I try to find ones that are actually interesting, not like really, there's a lot of really dry, boring books out there. I definitely avoid those. In fact, there's even some fiction books that have some very strong privacy and security themes that we have read in our book club. And I had kept that at the higher level, uh, at the Dragon Slayer and at the Knight Errant level for patrons for quite a while. But I wanna, I wanna broaden, I wanna get more people involved. So I'm gonna be opening that up to my Castle Guard level and above. Uh, which means almost all my patrons will have access to the book club. So we're going to be starting that in October uh, for everybody, for the broader audience. So just FYI, I will be telling everybody about it with a post here uh, on Patreon for my, for my patrons. And also we'll be discussing these books on Discord. And of course, Nichols' book is going to be on that list at some point here soon. The next one, however, will be Your Face Belongs to Us by Cashmere Hill. But to the point about Nick's book, we are actually going to be doing a giveaway. So stay tuned after the interview where I'll give you all the details on how you can enter. But we're going to be giving away several copies of Nick's book. So again, stay tuned after the interview for more details on how to enter to win a free copy of the book. One more thing, October is National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. And of course, on this show, every week is about cybersecurity awareness. So I'm, I'm not sure if I will do anything special for this. I might, you know, it's a long month. I'll see if I can't sneak something in. But just FYI, in case you're interested, there's a link in the show notes to the uh, CISA website about National Cybersecurity Month and some really nice materials they have there. And I encourage you, if nothing else, to check those out for sure. All right. So uh, without further ado, let's get to our interview with Nichols about how to catch a fish. Nick Olds is a cybersecurity expert who has worked on incident response and threat hunting teams, has served his country for over a decade in the cyber and special operations communities, and created and taught several courses on a variety of cybersecurity topics. And to top all that off, he has just recently published a book called How to Catch Fish. Welcome to the show. Hey, Carrie. Thanks for having me on today. So before we get into the whole meat of the issue, why don't you start by telling us a little more about yourself, maybe, and you know how you came to write this book? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you had a pretty good intro, but uh, just to add a little bit more context here. Uh, so I had a little bit of a traditional career so far, and then a little bit of a non-traditional kind of combined together. So like most people, you know, my first IT job, I started out uh, on a help desk, actually, uh, at my, my university. I really, really enjoyed that, doing some basic IT work. 
uh, kind of transition a little bit more into security stuff, removing viruses from students' computers and looking at some different phishing emails and things like that, and kind of had a, a pretty wide scope of, of things that I was responsible for there. Um, and that kind of led me into uh, my next role, which I, I started working in networking. I was fascinated with, you know, the allure of routers and switches and packets mm -hmm. traversing the network and, <laughs> you know, hardware, software, you know, you got to touch it all. So I, I really enjoyed that. And, and that's kind of what got me more into the networking side. And then I did a little bit more security. And then I just kind of fell in love with security at that point. So uh, I was helping out doing, you know, some antivirus work and stuff like that. And uh, I just kind of got hooked. I just saw the really cool things that attackers were doing. I saw a need to be able to help people and, and stop, you know, these, these bad things from happening to them. And I kind of just got sunk all in on security. So, so once I, I got into security, you know, I've had a few roles since then at, you know, all kinds of different organizations, government organizations, small, medium, large, public, private funded startups, everything in between. And then as you kind of alluded to, you know, I've also been fortunate enough to serve serve our country throughout this time. Uh, I've been a, a military member uh, for over a decade now, specializing in cyber and special operations community, um, kind of seeing how the military does things as well, how they respond to incidents mm -hmm. and phishing mm -hmm. emails as well. And that's kind of what led me to, you know, getting into this book. So all along this way, you know, I, I saw a need for phishing training and, and I saw that area growing and expanding, but end users and analysts coming up in the field, they didn't really have one centralized place to mm. to learn how to identify phishing emails. It was kind of all these disparate sources. And as I was coming up and, and learning this, you know, I was getting things from blog posts and podcasts like this one and, and articles that I was reading here and there. And I was like, you know, there'd be a, a great resource to have this all in one place to teach not only just analysts, but end users, you know, the moms, the aunts, the uncles, the grandparents that reach out to you that say, hey, is, you know, is this email bad? I got this. Oh, I sent them yeah. this. What should I do? You know, so I, I kind of wanted to to create something, you know, that that I could share with everyone that, that had a very broad audience that wasn't high technically in the weeds, but a lot of people could, could benefit from and, and start improving on things. So that's kind of how I went down this road of, of writing a book. And then, you know, like, like probably most authors, life got in the way a couple of years passed and I, I ran out of excuses. So it was, it was time <laughs> to just, just start chipping away at it. And, uh, and that's what I did. Right. I mean, as another author, I could tell you, it's a, it's a big deal to write a book and it, there's just a lot that goes into it. A lot of people think, ah, you just write stuff down, right? And like, no, no, there's, there's a lot more to it. And yeah. So I don't think anyone going into it really knows what they're getting into it until they start. You know, you, you think you have like this outline and, and you'll just start writing and everything will come to you. And it's just like, you know, writer's block is a real thing. Everyone's mm -hmm. going to hit it at some point. And it's working through that, making, you know, progress, small progress. It's better than perfection. So whatever you can do just to keep chipping away and, and get to, you know, a finished product, which is the goal. And, and then seeing that actual book in your hand is a surreal you know, experience. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. It is. It really is to have it to hold it in your hands. Uh, that, that there's something to that. All right. So you're the expert now. So let's let's dive into some <laughs> of this stuff. Let's start off with some basics. So email is one of the few communication mechanisms these days that is actually still based on open and non proprietary standards. I mean, everyone else's messenger can only be used with their, themselves. But I mean, think how weird it would be today if you if you could only if you have Gmail account, but you could only email other people with Gmail, right? We don't think about that, but that's the way basically everything else works. Certainly with messengers or whatever. So let's talk a little bit about some of these standards. And and I want to before we get into the 
it's kind of the the meat of the thing. I think it's important for people to have a high level view of like what happens like when I send an email because you know if I have a Yahoo account and they have a Gmail account, then that's gone through two different servers, for example. And there are you know there's client side stuff and there's server side stuff. And so anyway, let's walk us through at a very high level some of the technologies and things behind what happens when I send an email. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this was was one of the, the, it's actually the first chapter of my book. So explaining this at a high level so that people understand, because it is important and it is something, you know, I didn't really understand it. And I worked in IT for a couple of years before I actually, you know, did the research and, and dove into it to try and understand exactly the process that it took. Um, and it's really not that complicated if you break it down into simple steps. So everything in an email starts with a mail application. So there, there's two main mail applications. So that is like a web mail application where you're logging into a web server, like a, a Gmail is, is very popular for this, but also like Yahoo uh, in, in the good old days, AOL.com was really big, MSN, you know, some of those applications. But the point is you're, you're logging into a website, you're logging into uh, a mail client that's hosted on a web server. Um, everything's dependent on you having connection to the internet for that service. The other application, which is not as common, but it is still pretty, very prevalent is a desktop application. So this is like an Outlook client or some other mail client that runs locally on your PC. Mm-hmm. So regardless of what your, your mail platform is or what you're sending this for personal business, whatever the environment is, you know, all email starts with that mail application and it starts with crafting the email and, and, all emails, you know, have some of the same categories and concepts here. And it's it's all got a sender, which is who you're sending the message to, a recipient, which is most likely you or the organization you're representing, a subject, which is, you know, a, a brief description of the email, and then a body, which contains the content. This is the details of the message. And then you could have attachments as well, which are, you know, files that you're adding in addition to the context that you're providing in the body of the email. So all mail applications start like that. So you, you have to fill out this this email template, whatever, and then you click send. And that's where, you know, the process just starts. So the first thing that happens when you send email is it goes to an email server. This is using SMTP, Simple Mail Transport Protocol of Report 25. The message goes to this email server that's hosting a couple different services on it. The email server looks at this and it, it examines the email message, specifically the header of the message, and it looks at the sender and the recipient. Now, you kind of mentioned a little bit, you know, if you're Gmail, you can only email Gmail people like that wouldn't be very efficient. If, say, I'm a Gmail user, I want to email someone at firewallsdontstopdragons.com, you know, your domain. Obviously, those are two different domains. So they're going to have to traverse the Internet for that. So the first step is your email server looks at those domains, compares them and determines, is this a local domain or a remote domain? Local meaning, is it in-house? Is it something I can deliver internally or is it something I have to go out to the Internet find the next hop and the next hop and ultimately the the email server on the other end that can actually accept this message and deliver it to say yourself carry uh, mm-hmm. at firewalls and subdragons so it looks at these records um, if it's internal it can handle it internally it just sends it to that email sits on the server waits for the user to log in and then it gets delivered to the mail client if it's externally then we have to start going out to the internet and use what we call the dns or domain name service server so Everyone that doesn't know your domain name service is kind of like if you got one of those phone books way back in the day. I'm dating <laughs> dating myself a little bit, but I know you know understand this, Carrie. But mm-hmm. so computers they don't talk with domain names. They don't talk with 
CNN.com, Yahoo.com, Facebook.com, stuff like that. They talk with IP addresses, which might be 1.1.1.1, 2.2.2.2, and, and a whole plethora of different IP addresses. So for a DNS server, it's kind of like when you had a phone book, you looked up someone's name, like I wanted to look up Carrie Parker, I can look over and figure out what your phone number was. And then I would pick up the phone and dial that in. Uh, the same thing happens on DNS. You're looking up a record. I want to know where Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons is. I look over to the right side of this and I see an entry that says the IP address is 5.5.5.5, just for an example. Mm -hmm. um, so then I need to find a, a location, a route to that IP address. So then I start going to different routers and servers all around the world until I find you know, that actual IP address. But in mail, it's the same exact way. So you're trying to resolve that domain that I'm trying to send, that remote domain, to an IP address. So we start looking for that IP address. Uh, if we don't know, you know, we'll ask another DNS server and another server and another server and another server along the line until we find, you know, the location of it. Once that's found, you know, it comes all the way back to our email server. We get that IP address and we start routing our message out throughout the internet through different routers to get to that end result. Once we get to that end result, it's kind of unpacking everything uh, that we went out. So the SMTP server will take a look at the message. It looks at the uh, sender and the recipient. It confirms, hey, I am actually this, this domain. I do have records for this client. It then uses POP3, so that's Post Office Protocol and IMAP, Internet Mail Address Protocol. And what happens here really is the message sits on the server and waits for the client to log in and check that server. Right. So it doesn't actually get delivered to the user's mailbox. It sits on the server. When the user logs in, they check that server. They say, hey, I'm Carrie at Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Do you have any mail for me? The email server says, yeah, actually, I do. I have a bunch of messages. Here they are. And then it pushes you all to them. And it keeps, you know, like the timestamps and the dates of when they were... They were all sent and delivered and all that stuff. That stays with the message, but it delivers them only when you check in. If you never check in, it never delivers them. It just sits on the message. Um, and then you checking in, checking your mail client, you know, saying, hey, do I have any email? That's what delivers them to you. Then now you can see, you know, starting from the top, the sender, the recipient, the subject, the body, and then any attachments that are associated with that. So kind of like the U.S. mail system, like when we're sending mail through the to the regular mail system, we don't see all of that magic that happens behind the scenes. It's all hidden from us. Absolutely. In a similar way, when we're looking at emails, the raw emails themselves, if you actually looked at the, the – and if anybody did email back in the day like I did, like in the 90s when it was very, very raw and you're using like Elm at the term, terminal – you got to see all this ugliness, but today that's all hidden from us. So our email clients make it look pretty. So, so we don't see all that stuff, but you get into this in your book a little bit. There are reasons why we might actually want to see the ugliness, go down and look at the, some of these details. So first of all, if we did, what would we see and how would we do that if we wanted to? Yeah. So th that's where we're starting to get into like some of the header details of a message. So the header contains additional technical details about the message and the path it took from the sender from the, to the recipient. So we kind of talked a little bit about how I was saying you're going to the mail server. Uh, if it's local, it gets delivered. If it's remote, we've got to go do some DNS queries, go out to the internet, jump through a bunch of different hops. Uh, the header contains much of that information, you know, those paths, those different servers that the email message traversed and it keeps a record of that. And then when it gets to the recipient, uh, you can actually review those with just a few quick clicks, you know, uh, to analyze the header and see, you know, okay, it took this path that went through this server. This sounds about right. It doesn't make sense. It's kind of odd. So um, what I like to do and what I encourage people to do and what we kind of cover in the book, you know, is analyzing headers. At first, they, they can be a little bit 
intimidating. You know, there's a lot of technical information, but it, mm -hmm. it's kind of like the, the equivalent of like opening the hood of a car. Right. You don't have to understand everything, but you can look at some things and say, hey, that that looks broken. You know, that that's leaking. That that cable doesn't look <laughs> like it's right. And, you know, I don't have to be a mechanic to understand that. The same thing happens with, you know, with an email header. You can take a look at it. There's tools that we cover in my book. They're super easy, super simple, a few clicks, free open source using a, a web browser. Tools like MX Toolbox, Microsoft header, uh, message header analyzer. Uh, Google Admin Toolbox. We all walk through those in my book, and and you 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 grab the header information from the email, you put it in these tools, and they parse it out for you, and it it kind of identifies you know the sender, the recipient, the subject, the path it took in a super easy format that's easy to read. And and what I like to focus on, you know, is some of those key components. You know, like who actually sent me this message. Um, mm. Sometimes the header will tell you something different than what it displays to you. Uh, mm. What is the path it took? Should it have gone through these servers? all over the world, or should it not have, you know, and, and, and understanding that. What is the source IP address? Does that make sense? Does that line up with, you know, where this email is supposedly coming from, the domain, the location, the country, uh, things like that. And what I like to really look at is the reply message, the reply address, mm. depending on what that. So that is, if I hit reply to this message, where is that going? So if, Carrie, you sent me an email and I hit the reply button, I would expect that it would go to you. Well, sometimes mm -hmm. in suspicious or malicious emails, that reply is to a different email address that the attackers will then monitor and, and they will respond to accordingly. So if they don't own the email address that they're impersonating, they might mm -hmm. put a different malicious reply mm -hmm. to. And that way it's kind of like an out-of-band communication and they can either hop back into the compromise account or respond to you with a different account and stuff like that. But it, it's it's a really simple, easy process once you do it a few times. It just takes you know some practice, a few clicks, and, you know, a web browser and anyone can analyze a header and get a lot more information about, you know, some potential suspicious indicators. These protocols we're talking about, you know, POP3 certainly been around for a very long time. SMTP has been, I mean, decades. We're talking, these, this has been around a very, yep. very long time. And uh, back when these things were created, security, honestly, was kind of an afterthought. I mean, I don't know if it was because it was beca between academics at the time and they thought we all trust each other. So, you know, we're not going to build in things like encryption at the time. Uh, we've, we've had to bolt a lot of these things on over the, over the years since. And, one of the things we've had trouble with is the spoofing of a sender, as you were kind of alluding to. These things, these fields, these headers can be spoofed, can be changed, can be made to look like one thing when they're really are, they're another. So how hard is it to do that? And what kind of authentication mechanisms have we kind of bolted on in the years since to try to fix this problem? Yeah, that's a great question. So you know, spoofing in terms of phishing specifically, because that's what we're focusing on today, is is sending an email with a false sender address in, in plain and simple terms. Um, it's often done to impersonate a known or trusted brand or individual. So you know someone, you want to impersonate them as the attacker. It's usually why you're spoofing an email address. You want to establish some quick credibility, rely on a previously built reputation or relationship. And the fact of the matter is it's it's very easy. It's easy for attackers to do. There's multiple tools out there, open source paid tools. The attackers have a bunch of options to spoof these phishing emails. 
and spoof the sender so that when you get that message, it's coming from someone else or it appears to be coming from someone else. Um, it's a very trivial thing that you can either pay for or do yourself uh, with a couple clicks. And when I started, you know, you talked about a little bit about these different authentication methods and stuff like that. These weren't things. So some of these, these services and these tools that you were talking about and DNS and SMTP and POP3, that, that's been around for decades. So DKIM, DMARC, and SPF, these are three authentication methods that are that are rather new. I mean, probably within the last five or 10 years, they've been really gaining traction and, and getting to be adopted by more and more organizations to help try and uh, secure the email environment a little bit more. So they add a layer of verification and authenticity to the sender. So they're a way of kind of verifying that I actually, me, Nick, sent this message to you. It was intended. It's from my you know, organization, my domain, my server, all those different things. And yes, it can still be tricked. It's not perfect, but it's a step in the right way that we didn't have before. So um, we've talked about those three are, you know, authentication methods. They help verify things. We'll break one, each one down, uh, kind of talk about them a little bit more. So DKIM stands for Domain Keys Identified Mail. That allows domain owners to automatically sign emails from their domain. So if I own a domain or you own a domain or an organization like CNN or Yahoo or Facebook, they own a domain, they can sign it and say, this is from, you know, my organization. Like I, I sent this, it's an additional verification method. Can it be tricked? Yes. But is it an added step that attackers have to take and that legitimate users have to take? Yes, absolutely. Um, the next one is SPF, Sender Policy Framework. Uh, this is a way for domains to list all the servers that they send emails from. So say I have... 10 servers that I send emails from, I can verify those and list them out and say, hey, if you get an email that's not one of these 10 servers, it didn't come from me. Mm. And, and, you know, and vice versa. I'm like, if I know you and you only send emails from these 10 servers, you know, it can't be good. <laughs> Again, not foolproof, not 100%, but it's it's a step in the right direction to, you know, verify that, that the sender is actually the sender is. And then the, the last one is DMARC, that's Domain-Based Message Authentication Reporting and Conformance. And this tells the email server, you know, what to do based off these different DKIM and SPF results. So if DKIM, most, basically these are pass or fail authentication methods. So it either passes the rules that were set up previously or it fails it. DMARC is how you're gonna handle those. So maybe say it passes DKIM and fails SPF, and you're going to say, okay, I want to reject that email, or I want to quarantine it, or I want to deliver it, or vice versa. If it passes DMARC, or if it passes SPF and doesn't pass DKIM, you want to quarantine it and look at it later. Um, it's really how the organization wants to handle DKIM and SPF. Unfortunately, not everyone is abiding by this and, and has a has used it at their organization. So it's kind of just hit or miss. You know, there's legitimate companies right now that are doing business every single day and they don't use DKIM and SPF. And, you know, there's malicious organizations that are tricking people every day that use DKIM and SPF. So it, it just depends, you know, what your organization has to, what level of risk they're willing to accept based on their email and their client and their services that they want to they offer and deliver to their clients. Yeah, like as, as an example of that. So if... Twitter was sending me an email for said maybe there's a problem with my account. So I get something from Twitter.com and it's gone through all this process and Twitter has the DCAM and the SPF and all these things set up. And I can see that really is from Twitter.com. But if it was from T-V-V-I-T-T-E-R.com, it's not Twitter, it's Twitter. Twitter, yeah, absolutely. can't pronounce that. But at a quick glance, I might see Twitter.com. Oh, and my email client says, yes, that's on the up and up. It's definitely from the server. 
tvvittr.com, which is not Twitter. So it's legit in the sense that it comes from the domain. It really says it is, but it's still tricking you, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I've seen that, you know, real world. I've seen, you know, really good domain masquerades like that where they're registering, uh, attackers are registering and using domains that look extremely similar to the actual domain. And they use that for email campaigns. They're setting everything up. They'll build reputations with them. They'll use them to send legitimate emails so that services trust them. Um, and then they'll use that for their attack. And then once their attack's over, they'll, you know, burn it all down and never use it again. So it's it's definitely a tactic that can be used. And it's, you know, it's kind of on the end user to understand a little bit, read the email closely, because there's not many tools that would catch what you're what you're saying right there. I mean, there are some advanced alerts and reporting that you can do. But, you know, by and large, that's a legitimate domain that was registered sending a message to you. Right. It's going to be difficult, you know, to to filter that out and detect it. And, I mean, there are ways, but it's. It's challenging. So short of, you know, filtering, which we'll talk about here in a minute, are there like on web browsers that, you know, for the longest time when you went to an HTTPS website, it had a nice little lock icon on it. Now that's kind of going away because they're all locked. So, so they're kind of, you know, not showing that as much anymore because it's assumed they're locked. But for, with my email client, is there any sort of indication that I get? Like, is, there, is there a visual representation, an icon or something that lets me know that this one is legit or at least passes these tests? So there are different platforms will flag messages that they know are suspicious to begin with. I just got one. I uh, actually posted this on LinkedIn the other day um, that the message did not make sense to the domain that it was supposed to be sending from. And and actually, it was Gmail. Gmail flagged this and said, you know, hey, right at the top of the message, like, this could be a malicious message or this could be a suspicious mm. message. Please, like, proceed with caution. So there are certain tools built into some of the mail applications already that are doing that, that are doing some of the checks that you're saying and trying to alert individuals ahead of time. A lot of organizations are also doing, uh, we call it EXT tagging, external tagging. So if a message comes from an external party, uh, meaning it's not your domain, not someone in your organization. It will create a banner. It will add something to the subject. It'll it'll give you some sort of alert saying, hey, this is from outside of your organization. You know, proceed with caution. If they're asking for stuff, you know, like respond with caution, things like that. And it, it's it's been a really effective tool for some of the things we were just talking about, you know, like impersonation attempts where people are registering domains that look similar. Well, if in your example, like, Twitter with spelled with V's, it might have that EXT tag coming in. If I was also a Twitter employee and I'd say, Hey, wait a second, this doesn't make sense. You know, Carrie works down the office from me and he's emailing me, but it's saying this message is external. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should look at this closer. So there, there are some built in, you know, tools uh, that are coming with mail applications and different platforms right now, but th- there's no, to my knowledge, no unique standards across the board that everyone's ad- adopting and rolling out, you know, to, to help out with that. Right. All right. Let's get into this. What is phishing exactly? Like we've talked about it a lot on the show, but let's like let's give a real definition. Like what is it? What is phishing exactly? And then, you know, what are maybe some red flags that should alert me to a phishing email? I've I've done this in my class a lot of times, and it's usually easier easier to do visually. But like I've shown, like this is a definite phishing email, and here's how I knew that. Walk us through some of that. Yeah. So uh, phishing is is sending a deceptive email message to entice a malicious action. So, I mean, there's different platforms you can do phishing, you know, there's like smishing, uh, there's, you know, there's, there's voice, there's like human elicitation, stuff like that. But what we're talking about basically, specifically in this podcast and through my book is email phishing. So the use of email messages to entice a malicious action. Now that action could be clicking a link, downloading an attachment, providing sensitive information, 
doing some sort of finance or, or based action outside of that. But it, it's really the attacker is trying to get you to do something and they're controlling what that something is. And they're using, you know, some sort of deceptive tactic. And that deceptive tactic is what, what I call social engineering. And it's, it's an art of manipulating people to provide information or to take that action. So it's a way, basically, the attacker is trying to trick you to do something in, in layman's terms. And, and one of the most effective things that have been around since the beginning of email is using emotions. You know, we're all human. We all have feelings and we all have, you know, like interact to things differently and stuff like that. And, and that's been, you know, a tale as old as time in, you know, not only the digital space, but also the physical world, but in, in email, especially, you know, like attackers prey on people. They use people's doubts and insecurities and fear and things like that to, to get them to take this action. So one of the, the most common things, you know, is exploiting trust. So you impersonate a trusted source, you compromise a trusted account, and then you get in between and, and you send that phishing email. Um, another way that another common social engineering tactic is fear. There's some sort of adverse action, you know, like your account might get terminated in 24 hours. Uh, you might lose your job. You might miss out on this really good opportunity. You might hurt someone in your organization or not help someone, things like that. The opposite of that, you know, that is another common tactic is excitement. You know, you just won this lottery that you didn't play somehow, or you got this free tool set that you, you know, didn't enter this drawing for, or, you know, someone's going to, the Nigerian prince scam, like someone's going right. to send you all this money that you didn't know you were supposed to get if you helped them out and stuff like that. And it's, it's an exciting thing and they don't want you to miss out. So they, they kind of lure you in with that. The next emotion that, that I've seen really, really prominent is, is compassion. So, you know, like there's assistance needed, you know, someone's lost, someone's hurt, someone's stranded at an airport or in another country. Or a lot of times what, what, what we see in the industry here is like a major event, a catastrophic event occurs, you know, like COVID-19 was a perfect example, a hurricane, a tornado, an earthquake, a mass, you know, even unfortunately like a mass shooting, something like that, where there's a lot of victims in need, you know, these attackers right. will spin up campaigns and say, hey, do you want to help? COVID-19 victims, do you want to help Hurricane Sandy, Hurricane, whatever the, the new hurricane is, victims, like send money here and, you know, you can help these people in need when really they don't need it. And then using urgency, we talked a little bit about this, you know, so making it extremely time sensitive, like you have to do this right away. Uh, these people need your help right now and kind of tying all of these together to kind of get your biggest audience or depending on who you are targeting, you know, have your, your, your best impact of of the individuals taking that action if you're the attacker. Um, and, and what I recommend, you know, and, and this is what we kind of talk to in our book and what I've always taught, you know, is just you, you've got to scan the email from top to bottom. So you start out initially looking at the sender and the recipient. You know, obviously you're the recipient if you're receiving this email, but does the sender make sense? You know, am I supposed to be getting an email from this person? Is it someone I know? Is it someone I trust? Is it the right email address? Does it make sense? You know, and, and then I'll go mm. right. My next thing I always look at is, is the subject. You know, is the subject something, again, that aligns with something that this person should be sending? Is it something about my normal business job? Is it something about my personal life? Like if it's something way out in right field, you know, like it's something I probably doesn't pertain to me. It's that's a suspicious indicator right there. And then you're going to start going through the body and the body is where things get a little bit more interesting because there's a lot of information that goes on in the body, you know, so we've got the greeting is the first thing that opens up, you know, and this tells me like, hey, does this person know my name? Do they know how we talk? Is it a formal greeting? Is it an informal greeting? Is it 
uh, the right name? Is it the wrong name? Is it my full name? You know, and, and those all give, you know, some, some information because they're trying to build instant credibility with me by, by, you know, saying my name or saying a nickname or saying a screen name or a code name or, or whatever. Um, and then you get into the body and it's like, what are the individuals actually asking you? And does that make sense? Goes back to kind of your, your baseline activity is make sense, you know, and then we have the signature, which is the end, which is usually, you know, like the name, contact number, email, and is that line up with, you know, what I know about this person? Is it where they work? Is it where they're from? Is it what they should be doing? And all throughout that, you know, like you're going to be looking for one constant, which is spelling errors. Those are very common in, in phishing emails, phishing right. emails. Right. Uh, you know, grammatical errors, context errors, you know, things that just don't sound right when you read them out loud. That's, that's an obvious sign of suspicious activity. Links and attachments are my next thing. You know, if there's links that they're trying to get you to click, that's a potential suspicious indicator. If there's an attachment that they want me to execute that incorporates some of these things that we talked about, that's another suspicious indicator. And, and, and in my book, I kind of talk about, you know, like there's not one thing that hundred percent of the time is going to tell you this is a phishing email or not. It's usually right. like, a combination of multiple factors. And and that's why when I go through my process and what I try and teach people is, you know, you're looking at a list of a few different indicators and making the best judgment possible. So you're taking things like the sender, the subject, the body, the links, the signature, you know, the spelling errors, and then you're packaging that all up and saying, hey, you know, this makes sense or it doesn't make sense. Or it's somewhere in between and I'm not comfortable interacting with it. So I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. I'm going to report it. I'm going to help someone else. I'm going to block it. I'm going to delete it. How have phishing campaigns like changed over time? If there has been an evolution with ransomware, you know, when Bitcoin came around, that changed the whole game, right? Um, but it, you know, emails been around a long time. Have phishing targets and techniques pretty much been the same over the years, or, or have they evolved? Yeah. So phishing, it's it's a dynamic attack vector. So it it, it means that that basically means it's, it's constantly changing and evolving over time. So phishing now is vastly different than it was five years ago and even more different than it was 10 years ago. And, and it will be the same in the future too. You know, it's constantly changing as new technologies come into play, as training is made available to individuals, as events occur over time. You know, we talked about a little bit about some of these compassion events that happen, you know, those are worked into it as well. And, um, you know, the core component doesn't change, you know, it's still an attacker trying to entice an individual to take an action, but the way that they do that adapts as things you know, become easier as things become harder, as new tools are available, both on the offense and the defense. And, and that's a constant that will never, never really stop. But what I've seen personally, and what I, I see being a continual trend, you know, it used to be attachments were very popular and popular. Mm. Like that was a very popular, easy way to deliver your intended software that you want to execute on the individual's machine. Um, but now, you know, like the filters have gotten really good email filtering tools can execute attachments. They can do a lot of really cool things to, you know, scan an attachment to see if it is, you know, known malicious, they can execute it in some environments and, you know, do a, a really quick analysis to see what it's doing, to see interact with it, um, where they can just block it all together. And, and, and that's something that we didn't happen uh, we didn't have mm -hmm. as common, you know, five or 10 years ago, but what I have been seeing, you know, more and more is, is now links are, are much more common, you know, with the resources available to, uh, quickly spin up domains and web servers and host websites within a couple minutes, the industry has kind of shifted more towards, uh, malicious links versus malicious attachments. There still are attachments that are getting sent, but, you know, more often than not, it's, uh, it, it's more for, for link analysis. So, 
We talked a little bit about, you know, some of the event-based attacks, but what I've also seen recently that uh, something surprised me that I had never seen before was using QR codes mm. as part of uh, an attack as a, as a delivery method. So a QR code, if, you, if you're not familiar with them, you, you pull out your smartphone, uh, you, you open up the camera application, you take a look at the uh, QR code and it, it has a link that comes up to it. So the QR code translates to a URL page. You can click that link and visit, you know, visit the URL rather quickly on your smartphone. Well, what I've seen recently is uh, attackers will send a phishing email. They won't have any links in the phishing email and they'll say, hey, for you to redeem this offer, for you to keep your account from being terminated, from you to collect this million dollar lottery that you didn't play, scan this QR code and there'll be more details available. So you pull out your phone or whatever, your tablet, whatever device that you're using, you scan the UR code or the QR code, go to the site, and it's it's a different method of you know, an evolved method of uh, exploiting and attacking an individual. So what I've also seen develop and gotten really good over time is, you know, quickly registering convincing domains, creating very convincing brand logos and graphics and diagrams and stuff like that. So it seems like, you know, some of these attackers have taken really good graphic design courses because they can, (laughs) you know, take a picture of a logo from a website or an email address and basically have a spit image of it that looks exactly like the logo with maybe one little detail and, and they'll go through the whole thing, you know, so they'll see how the, the emails are crafted, the organization, how their signatures are, and they'll maybe change, you know, one number on the phone number or something like that so that they call it a number they control. And, and that's just something that's gotten better over time and, and the level of sophistication has is, is gone up. As far as targets and stuff like that, I, I've seen, you know, larger organizations used to be the biggest ones because, you know, all the money's in banks, all the money's in large publicly traded organizations that have money to, to pay out and, you know, have big technology and stuff. And and as they've matured and gotten better, the, the shift has kind of focused a little bit more now on small and medium businesses and home users mm-hmm. and things like that, because, you know, the technologies haven't caught up to them yet. They might not have the funding to get these advanced email filters and the training to, you know, train their end users the same way, but they still have money too. So a lot of organizations that I've, I've, seen now and consulted with now and talked with now, you know, they're falling victim to some of these same attacks that a couple of years ago, the large organizations were only seeing these sophisticated attackers, you know, going where, you know, the, the fruit is a little bit lower, you know, the bar is a little <laughs> bit easier to get in. Um, and, and, you know, they need some of the same stuff too. They need, you know, good training and tools and, and ways to report and investigate phishing emails as well. All right, so a couple quick terms that I've heard that, I, that the audience may not be familiar with. So one of them is called spear phishing, and another one is, I don't know where this term came from, BEC, business email compromise. I think that's one of the goofiest terms I've ever heard, but these are related to phishing. What what are those exactly? Yeah, so, so spear phishing is very targeted phishing campaigns. So if you think of like, we'll just talk some numbers here, like maybe a phishing campaign might target a, a, a section of an organization and send out 500 phishing emails. You know, they're, they're going for a, a very large audience. They know that not everyone's going to click or interact on this, but they know some of them are. Spear phishing is more targeted. Like instead of 500 messages in our campaign, we might only send five messages to the directors of each organization or five to the top important employees or five to the marketing department or five to the finance department, something like that. So you're only sending it to a small group of people um, with the hope, you know, that you have the same the same payout, the same interaction that they click this link, they take this action, the stakes might be a little bit higher, you know, because they might have different levels of training or security tools in their place. Um, the next term you talk about is business email compromise, hands down the biggest 
financial loss motivator phishing email attack right now on the board. Um, it, it's extremely lucrative for organizations, uh, for the attackers. It's extremely detrimental to organizations on the victim side. So in this account or this this attack, really what happens here is it's often called BEC, business email compromise, an account is compromised or impersonated of a trusted organization or vendor. The attacker then requests like some sort of financially motivated or, or sensitive information, like an invoice being paid, banking information being altered, um, or something or wire transfer being changed, something like that. From that, you know, vendor or trusted email account to the business. So the business gets this email, they think it's a legitimate request, they make this change, you know, oftentimes, again, like it's a, it's a wire transfer request or an invoice being paid. Um, and then they process it as normal, because, you know, this trusted vendor requested it. And then this money gets sent somewhere other than where they wanted it to go. And then the vendor comes back around when they get any access to their account, and they say, hey, you know, we never got money for this invoice or this wire transfer. And then it's a really bad day, because then the business has to go through it. <laughs> They look through their accounts and they say, oh, actually, we paid this invoice, but we sent it to this bank account like you asked us to. And then the vendor goes, actually, that's not ours. We don't know what it is. And oh, by the way, we still need paid. So it, it can be a very, very financially devastating attack to the individuals. And from the attackers, you know, it doesn't take a lot of sophistication. You know, all they really need to do is compromise a vendor. Uh, get their credentials, monitor their mailbox. Oftentimes they'll do like rule monitoring, stuff like that, where they'll say, hey, if I see an invoice or an email about invoice or credit card or payment, send a notification to me, I'll hop back in their account and I'll take over and I'll get back to work. And then, you know, they're just kind of in the middle. They're they're impersonating this trusted vendor. They're communicating back and forth and and they're, they're trying to get paid as, as most phishing campaigns and attacks go, you know, they're usually finance motivated. At some point, the attackers are trying to get money to fund whatever they're trying to fund and then to do this again and again and again. Uh, gotcha. Okay. So uh, we've talked a little bit about this, um, about filtering mechanisms. And I want to get back to that. A lot of email services have built in spam and junk mail filtering, and some are better than others. For example, Gmail's great. I mean, I hardly ever see a junk mail in my Gmail account. And Yahoo is horrible. I get junk mail in my Yahoo account all the time. But most of that is for what we call spam or junk mail. It's not really for the phishing stuff. Is there like, what is the difference between a spam email and a phishing email? And are the spam filters able to block or flag phishing emails? Are these two different things or are they related? Yeah, so spam tends to be unwanted marketing messages. That, that's the best way that I can think about it. You know, it's kind of like sometimes you get in the mail, uh, your snail mail, you get those like ads or those books that you never really signed up for. And, you know, most people don't even look at them. You just throw them right in the trash. That's kind of what spam messages are. You know, they're not really specific to you. They're not really tailored to anything that pertains to you. They're just send as many emails out to the masses as we can. And hopefully, you know, someone will take a look at it or click on something or visit our page. Um, and, and the spam filters do a really good job, like you're saying, for the most part of filtering those out. They see, you know, high volumes of messages sent to a lot of different people all at once and they'll block those or they'll, they'll put them into a special folder and say, hey, if you want to look at these, you can review them and tell us if they're spam or not, or we're just going to delete them and you know, a week, two weeks, 30 days, something like that. You know, as we're fishing, they're more targeted. They have a malicious action tied to them. They want you to click a link, open attachment, give some information. Spam, they just want to deliver it to you. They just want the oh. chance for you potentially to look at their message. Uh, and, and then they'll go from there. Um, spam filters, they're great at filtering spam. They're not great at filtering phishing emails. They weren't designed to do that. 
Uh, they don't do it well. They can't keep up with the different trends and tactics that phishing messages can do. All they're really good at is keeping the noise out, you know, keeping the, that trove of phishing or of spam emails in your mailbox that makes it almost unusable. They can't really do much more than that. And, and they're not financially motivated. They're just trying to you know, get you to click on their emails. Phishing, filtering, it's a totally different ballgame. You know, they're more targeted. They're malicious in nature. They're doing things like executing links and attachments. And, and, and they're trying to just stop phishing emails. So they're, they're certainly separate tools, certainly separate things that you need to have in your arsenal to, to protect yourself. You mentioned this already, but let's dig into a little bit more. A lot of these emails have links or buttons or images that are really buttons uh, that under the covers are going to redirect you to some other website. They are links of one form or another. And it can be really tricky to analyze these uh, because certainly when it's an image or a button, the link is not obvious. Even if it, the link is obvious, with the and I've, this is a tricky one that I've had to tell my students about is that link, even though it looks like HTTPS colon slash slash whatever, it could say whatever it wants. The actual link under the covers could be completely different than what what that text is showing you. So how do we analyze these links to determine where they're really going to take us, you know, with, with look like host names and URL shortening services and hiding behind buttons? How do I know what I can click? And is there any way to validate it before I click that link? Yeah, certainly. And, you know, this is this is something that's that's growing and changing, you know, as the industry evolves over time, because it's definitely like you said, it's getting harder. You know, you mentioned some of this HTML images or, or pictures, you know, being links and stuff like that. Like in the past, that was never a thing. You know, a link was a link and everything else wasn't a link. But now, unfortunately, like a lot of things can be links. So mm -hmm. one of the first things, you know, that I recommend to anyone really that's doing this type of work is is get smart with link hovering. So in link hovering, you take your mouse, you, you don't click on anything, you're, you're not, you're, you're very particular and, and cautious of what you're doing with this email because you don't, you don't know the validity of it yet. You know, you're still doing your, your initial examination, investigation, analysis, whatever you want to call it. But you take your cursor, uh, you take your pointer, you hover over the link, and you just rest it there for a second. When you do that, either at the bottom of your web browser, your application, whatever you're using, it's going to render or, or tell you where that link is going to the best of its ability. You know, And that might be something totally different than what it says. It might say www.google.com and you hover over it and it says virus.cn.h7. <laughs> whatever, some crazy right. on you, like, that doesn't make sense. But other times, like you're mentioning, you know, there's these, these link shortening services like uh, Bitly and TinyLink and stuff like that. So if you hover over it, it, you know, you're not getting any information. It's just going to tell you what it says exactly. So there's certain instances where you're going to need to go a step further and, and link hovering won't really reveal what that intended resource is. So you need to actually extract that link and take a closer look at it. So you can right click, not left click, which is a big difference. <laughs> left clicking, case, yes, yes, left clicking will take you to that intended resource, which could be a malicious page. It could be a, a number of different things: a credential harvester, a malware dropper, whatever. Um, so you definitely don't want to left click an email that you're trying to interrogate. You want to right click it, and then. Your mail application, whether that's web or desktop, whatever you're using, should have the ability to copy the hyperlink. Now, you have a few different options when you copy this hyperlink. You can then open up, you know, like a notepad or a word page and just paste it into to visually view it. Or you can use some tools to do this. And the tools are, are where it gets really interesting and really fun. So there's a bunch of different tools that we cover in my book that are all open source that are free. Tools like 
virus total, URL scan, any run, things like that, um, that just take, you know, that, that link that you've copied and they will run it through a series of tools to analyze it and help determine what's behind that site. So URL scan, that's probably my favorite tool right now because uh, it'll actually take the shortener or whatever the site is, the link is, it'll extract the different places that it's going, run it through some reputation-based tools, give you some behavior, some idea of if this has been used for malicious campaigns before in the past or not. But then the best part about it is it'll actually give you a screenshot of that page on the far right. And you can click that screenshot of that hyperlink and take a look at it and say, okay, this is a page I want to go to, or this is a page I don't want to go to, or maybe it didn't work. You know, maybe the page is down already and stuff like that. But it's something that unless you physically click that link, you wouldn't be able to do. And it's something that they're going to that page on their behalf. You are still safe because you didn't go to the, the, the intended resource that the phishing campaign sent to you. They're doing it on your behalf, taking a screenshot of that page and showing it to you. Yeah, that's great. I love those tools. Yeah, it's awesome. And, you know, VirusTotal and AnyRun, they all do similar things like that. They'll give you an idea of, you know, where it's going, what, you know, what reputation it can. They just, each of them have different capabilities and limits that do that. Um, there are some built-in tools, you know, that, that can execute links before they come to you. So like Google has a built-in tool. Uh, Outlook has a tool called Safe Links that's enabled, you know, and, and they will try and execute that link before you can, essentially. And they're going off of a reputation-based. So has anyone essentially categorized this link before as malicious or suspicious in the past? If they have, you know, they're going to respond accordingly. Some won't let you go to it at all. Some will give you a warning sign saying, hey, this is, you know, malicious. Do you really want to proceed? Some, they won't, they might take the link out for you. It just depends what, what the settings are. But like I said, though, the problem is they check most of these tools at large, check them for the reputation at a point in time. So they check them, you know, maybe when the message is delivered, not 10 minutes ago or 10 minutes in the future or anything like that. So they can't give you like a constant recurring uh, right. reputation of this, they can just give you this one-time shot saying, hey, this is in my database of known bad websites, or it isn't. And then it gets delivered to you. There's a couple other tips that I'll, I'll give people as well. Like If this is like from your bank, and your bank says, hey, we're, your account's been locked, click here to fix it. This is something you already have a relationship with. I usually tell them, just go manually type it in. Like, go to your favorite, you know, for the bank and just, just go to the bank yourself. If there's a problem with your bank, when you log in, there's going to be a big banner at the top saying there's a problem. So don't even click the link at all. If you if you could just type it in manually and go there, that's the other thing. And the other thing I've sometimes told people to do, I'm curious to get your take on this, is is to – this is one advantage as far as I'm concerned for web email clients because when you check your mail on the web, it's semi-sandboxed already. So if there's like something malicious in the code itself, sometimes that helps you. For ex As a counterexample, Microsoft – Outlook, I think, got into trouble in the last year or so because they were trying the the Outlook client, the, the the app that you were running on Windows in the background was downloading your mail and actually preloading some of the links to to try to test them. But in the process, there was a bug in that there were actually people were getting infected without ever looking at their email because Microsoft was trying to look at it for them and screwing up. So. so so I don't know if you've heard of that happening before, but I mean, I, I think there are some advantages actually to using a web email client over a dedicated app. Well, absolutely. You know, I, I don't disagree with you. And, you know, there's there's the functionality piece. There's the mobility piece of, of using the web applications. And, and, and another thing I wanted to kind of touch on, you know, you you mentioned 
going to your web browser, typing in that website of the trusted known site you do. You know, I recommend anyone that's doing anything finance-based or anything like that that's sensitive information, you know, verify this on another mode of communication. So if someone from my bank, for some reason, emails me, which probably will never happen, and says, hey, I need this information from you, I'm not going to email them back. I'm going to pick up a phone and call them and say, hey, did you guys send me this email? Am I supposed to be doing that? Because it's a mode of communication that I control. Hopefully the attackers don't control as well that I can, you know, then verify authenticity. And I, I want to talk to the person I got this email from. I want to verify, you know, that the information is all correct and accurate. Um, and same thing, you know, the other way around. If someone gives me a phone call, I get a random phone call or text message on my phone that says, hey, I need you to send me this information or click this link or do something, you know, I might email them or I might use a different phone or use a landline or something like that to call them and, and, and verify it because, you know, you can't trust what's in an email signature. You can't trust what's in the email body and, and stuff like that. So, um, and I think, you know, back to your point about the web browser, you know, having access to another tab is, is really useful. You know, you can Google some things about this message if they don't make sense, you know, like, Say the company's located somewhere you don't think it is. You know, you can just do a quick Google search and say, hey, is, you know, Nick's hardware store located in Texas? And if it's not, you know, then maybe that's a sign that it's it's not the right sender. It's not the right recipient. You know, it's another right. another sign. So you have that flexibility quickly in the, in the uh, web applications. So, so real quick, you said it's not as common, but let's talk about it real quick anyway. That and that is attachments, and attachments can be very problematic if you if you open up something that that has been infected. So, what's your technique for it? There, someone sent me attachment. I I really do kind of want to look at this attachment because I think it's important, but I'm worried. Uh, I've got some concerns about its origin, or, or there might be some problems with it. So, similar to what we talked about with links, how might I handle uh, an attachment? Is there a way for me to validate that before I actually open it? Yeah. So unfortunately, like handling attachments gets gets pretty tricky because for you, we, we have the same tools that we talked about before. You know, we've got the virus totals, we've got the any run, we've got sandbox tools. And, and a sandbox is just a safe environment to execute this this attachment in to see if it's malicious or not, to, to take a look at the behavior and determine whether it's good or bad. Unfortunately, though, for all of those to occur, you have to download the attachment onto your computer. And by downloading it, you could be opening yourself up to additional risk by malicious code or software that's embedded in that attachment being executed on your machine. So on your regular PC, it's not really good for you. It's not really safe for you to interact with these attachments. You almost need a separate standalone computer or something like that that you can grab this attachment from, download it, and then upload it onto you know, one of these tools for analysis, or, you know, if you've, if you've got a, an environment that you work in that has a corporate security team, usually they have those abilities that they can then in a safe environment, download and execute this attachment. But for everyday home users, you know, if, if it is suspicious and you're not sure, you know, you can maybe look at the preview that might give you a little bit more information on it. But even then, if, if it's something you're not sure of, I would just err on the side of caution. I would not interact with it. I would not download it to my machine. There's really, unfortunately, not as easy of a process as analyzing the links as there are with, with attachments, just because the, the capabilities are so, so vastly different. Now that I'm, as you're saying that, I'm thinking, why don't some of these services have uh, an email inbox? Why can't I forward an email to VirusTotal and have it check the attachment? I don't know that they have that capability, but I'm surprised that nobody offers that. Yeah, that, that is actually, that, that's an interesting service. I'm not sure that exists, and it would be something that could help out a lot of people. Because um, then I wouldn't have to download it first. 
Yeah, yeah, and that, that you know that's the name of the game. There, it's just downloading that that attachment just just opens up a lot of risk, and and I'm not really sure if there are a service available for that. That's that's something I would I'd be interested in as well. And the only other thing I might mention is whenever whenever we're talking about virus total, it's less maybe an issue with links, but definitely with attachments is there are privacy potential privacy concerns. You are absolutely giving these documents to these other services, and they've got their own privacy policies, whatever they are, and you can look at them, and they're probably okay. <laughs> I haven't looked at them, but just know that certainly if it's you know got intellectual property or if you're a lawyer and it's privileged communications, you know there's there's that stuff plays in there too. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a great concern. You know, these tools are open source. They are, you know, they're they're there to help you out, but also, you know, your information is now provided to an external party. And for most everyday home users, you know, that's usually not a concern. Some corporate environments, you know, it depends on the information. So absolutely you're right. That's a that's a valid concern to be aware of before interacting with any of these tools. So if I do feel I've fallen victim to a phishing scheme, what do I do next? If I feel like I've maybe have gotten infected or, or or I have given information away, is there anything I could do at that point or am I just screwed? No, I mean, there's absolutely, there's definitely steps you can take. So we, we talk a little bit in my book uh, uh, about the Pickerel process. And, and that's, you know, like a short acronym for how to respond to incidents. It's what we do as incident responders in the industry, a process, a methodical process that we follow through step by step. We go more in the books about, you know, like, what each step does. And, and it starts, you know, just at a high level, the preparation, identification, containment, eradication, remediation, lesson learned. And it's a step from, you know, everything you're doing before the incident, walking through, cleaning everything up, returning everything to a good known state, and then, you know, walking yourself through uh, what we call like in the military, an after action review, you're kind of looking at what went well, what didn't go well, and what I can improve on next time. But for you as an individual, you know, you, you have this mistake and, and everyone has fallen for a phishing email. Whether you know it or not, you know, I've talked to some of the smartest people in the industry. I've fallen for phishing emails. I know if you're listening to this and you have an email account, you have to, you know, it, it happens. It happens to everyone. You know, the attackers are really good. It's everyone's got a life and they're busy. So <laughs> it's not the end of the world. It's going to happen. But if you do, you know, immediately you need to start looking for signs of compromise. So uh, depending on what happened, you know, if it was you put your username and password into a service you shouldn't have, or you clicked a link that you shouldn't have and you downloaded something, you know, the first thing you want to see is like, are there notifications? Am I getting emails for things I didn't sign up for? Am I getting abnormal logins or security alerts to my email address? Is my computer running weird? Am I getting, uh, this used to be common a lot more and not so much now, pop-ups or weird messages that I don't get, you know, and, and these are all clues of something odd that's going on with your computer. You know, the first thing you should do is reset your accounts. So if it was anything password user, username and password related, you need to change that password, use something that's complex, something that you're not using anywhere else, uh, use a password manager to help store that. So it's not a very easy, like spring 2023 password, you know, that's <laughs> something that's easily going to get guessed. So start out with a strong password, enable two-factor authentication. If you didn't have it before, get some sort of multi-factor, second factor to verify who you say you are, whether that's an app, a key, a text message, wh whatever it is, set that up too. If it's actually a piece of software on your machine, you got to start with your antivirus. Run an antivirus scan, a full antivirus scan. Uh, we talk a little bit about my book about a tool called Malwarebytes. Really great. They've got like a 14-day free trial or, or it's pretty reasonable to purchase outside. Mm -hmm. Another like add-on to run in addition to your antivirus so it doesn't replace it. So start using some tools to try and figure out what's going on. You can review your log messages to try and see like, hey, was there 
weird security events. And we talk a little bit about log messages in, in, in the book as well. And, and just trying to determine, you know, what's really going on. If you can't determine it, you know, and I, I understand a computer is a complex piece of equipment and not everyone can, you know, your best bet is just to restore the computer, you know, do a complete reboot your machine and then reinstall, you know, your operating system and your programs and your files and, and go from a fresh start, you know, just to try and remove any artifacts of malicious activity. Um, make sure your data is backed up, make sure you're doing all the right stuff beforehand. But that, that's one of your best bets. You know, if you tried all your tools, you can't figure out what's going on or, or, or what's wrong. You know, your best bet is just to do a clean install, a clean refresh uh, of your PC and then, and then, you know, learn from it. So that's like the last phase of the picker up process, you know, like, make a mental note. How did you fall for this? What could you do better next time? Mm -hmm. Would you benefit from backing up your machine more or less? Or would you have benefit from having an additional tool or additional filter? Or should you switch mail clients? Like things like that. Because, you know, I had a boss one time when I was doing instant response who told me, don't ever let a good incident go to waste. You know, you went through this pain, you learned something, hopefully like use that to your advantage moving forward. So, you know, get better on it, improve your process, improve your tools, improve your knowledge, share that with someone else uh, so that, you know, next time it's harder to fall victim or it's it's harder to lose that data or that information and you, you can get better as an individual or organization or a person. Another question is AI is, is all over the place now and ChatGPT and tools like them, I think are going to be used for these phishing campaigns. And I'm thinking for someone who doesn't speak the language, all of a sudden they're going to be able to generate an email with zero grammatical mistakes, very good idioms, very good formatting, uh, and much, much more convincing. Has this, have you seen this yet? Has this started to happen? Absolutely. A hundred percent. You know, there's different AI platforms that are actually designed for crafting emails and making phishing email campaigns and stuff like that. Um, I had a, a presentation I was working on a couple of weeks ago and within legitimately two minutes, I had five phishing emails, all invoice themed with different context to them, just with a couple prompts with ChatGPT. And I'm not, you know, like an AI guru or an expert like that. It's just quickly feeding good prompts to uh, one of these platforms can spit you out like text, pre-crafted emails, bodies for emails that you can send out. And and you touched on this a little bit, but like non-native English speakers, a lot of times we see phishing campaigns from non-native English speakers. And that is why when we talked a little bit about spelling being an issue, because, you know, they don't speak English as their first language. So if they misspell something or they use the wrong there or they use the wrong context or the apostrophe in the wrong place, you know, us as English speakers or me as an English speaker, I could pick up on that rather quickly. But if I speak a different language, it might not be so easy. You can use these chat GPT, these AI tools to quickly craft these in the language of your choice and they might be a little bit better than someone that speaks a couple different languages and English isn't their first one. So that is absolutely going to play into it. And I think maybe potentially we might see those spelling errors go down a little bit and be less common as there's tools made available that can help you craft these emails rather quickly. You can include like diversity and, and quickly change the context of the emails with just like a few prompts, like I discussed. So obviously, we need books like yours to help us get better at these things and to, pre- and to prepare for these things that are inevitably coming. But last question, are things getting better or are they getting worse? Are we winning this battle or not? Because it really seems like it's getting worse and it's not getting better. But is it getting better or worse? And are there technologies on the horizon, you know, like a new sort of demarker, DKIM or something? Is there something around the corner that's going to help put a stop to some of this or mitigate uh, the risks of phishing scams? Yeah. So, so in, in my opinion, I don't, I don't think we're winning 
the, the fishing battle. I mean, this has been the number one initial access method uh, for at least 10 years. You know, ever since I started in the industry, it's always been the top one. It continues to be the top initial access method because it works. You know, organizations can send out phishing messages and they know someone's going to click on it. Someone's going to fall victim. Someone's going to provide whatever action that they were looking for. And it continues to work, you know, and, and vulnerability, you know, that's usually the, the number two uh, infection method. And, that, and that's growing. And, you know, vulnerability management is doing some really good stuff. But, you know, phishing, it's preying on people. And, and what we really lack, you know, we're getting good and, and our technical controls are improving, but our, our training really isn't getting that much better. You know, I, I had the opportunity to work in a bunch of different organizations that had varying levels of, of training involved in different programs. And I never really got the skills to scan an email, use some tools and determine if it was malicious or not. You know, I just kind of would watch the videos, click next a little bit. And just like any other mandatory training, you know, I was trying to get done as quickly as possible. And I, I think the training's getting better. And I think there are different platforms and tools and we're, we're trying to catch up and get our end users smarter. And people are definitely way more aware now than they were in the past of, of the risks of phishing and, right. and what is potentially suspicious. And they know now, you know, that there's security individuals in your organization where there's there's ways that you can report messages and stuff like that so we're, we're definitely progressing but it's uh it's it's just getting more and more challenging you know as as we continue to to get more tools and get more get more attack vectors and stuff like that so i think in summary though you know like i think link execution and detecting is getting better i think we talked a little bit about some of the tools and some of the browsers doing this natively and platforms you know executing links and stuff like that uh, i think some of the reputation services are also evolving and getting faster you know so that quick check before you click on the link you know these are growing over time they're trying to catch up as fast as possible they're getting better as well and, and users are more aware, but I still don't think the training is where we need to be. And I still think it's it's extremely effective for attackers. They net a lot of money. They they continue to do it, and there's no signs of them slowing down using phishing to get into organizations all over the world. Well, and that's why we've got books like yours to help us, because God knows we need it. <laughs> so th <laughs> thanks again for all this information, Nick. It was great talking to you today. I learned a lot. Thanks, Kerry. I enjoyed it a lot, too. I'm so glad my publisher got Nick and I together. We're both published under the same publisher, A-Press, and we both share the same senior editor. I'm not sure what Susan's title is anymore, but she got us together, and I'm glad she did. That was a great topic, and it's good to kind of get into some of those details because it's real easy. I mean, we, we talk about email. It's been around for a really long time, and we kind of gloss over what's really going on under the covers and forget about it, but it's important, especially when you're trying to protect yourself from... Uh, these phishing emails to help understand how it works and what kind of things you could look at and tools you could employ to detect and protect yourself from these things. So that was great. That was a great discussion. So happy to have Nick on the show. And it was really cool that I got to meet Nick in person at DEF CON before our interview. I don't often get to meet my guests in person. Uh, but speaking of that, actually, uh, it reminds me, I just met Cashmere Hill. She was doing a book tour for the launch of her book, Your Face Belongs to Us. And she is a Duke grad, and Duke is just right in my neck of the woods here in the Triangle area of North Carolina. And so I went to go see her give a really nice talk to the law students there at Duke and had a chance to finally meet her in person. Even gave her one of my really super cool Dragon Challenge coins for all the work that she has done. And she has done a lot of great work in the area of privacy. So a couple of notes about the interview I wanted to, to come back to. First of all, we talked about initial access there toward the end, and that is actually like a term of art. This is 
a for real service that is offered these days. There's, it's become such an industry, uh, this malware industry, the hacking industry. There are groups out there that do nothing more than figure out how to get into organizations and companies and compromise uh, their networks, and then they stop. And it's like, and so they hand it off to someone else and sell that access to somebody else. Their whole skill set, their expertise is figuring out how to get in the door. The other kind of observation I wanted to make was, you know, we talked a lot about technological stuff, DKIM and SPF and some of these email techniques to try to help us better vet the the senders and, and prevent more spoofing, uh, which is used a lot in phishing campaigns. But, you know, we keep coming up with these technological solutions to these technological types of attacks. And, you know, we'll play the cat and mouse games. They'll get better, they'll get worse as we come up with new attacks and come up with new tools to stop those attacks. But the thing that's always going to be there, the, 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 no matter how good we get at these technological protections that we put in, the one thing that will always be there, people. And you know who you can't trust? <laughs> people. Humans will always be the weakest link. And I think it was Kevin Mitnick, who's a, a classic hacker, uh, who said that you, know, you can almost always hack into any organization and the go-to never-fail tool is social engineering, which means attacking the people. So there are still technological things we could do to address those things, you know, compartmentalization, making sure that we adopt least privilege you know, so that only the right people have the right access at the right time to the right level of confidential information, which means that if you try to social engineer the wrong person, you're out of luck because they, they can't get into the stuff that you want to get into. It's also important that we have, you know, belt and suspenders. We want to protect these things in multiple ways. It's like the old, you know, nuclear submarine thing where the, there were two keys that had to be turned to launch the missiles. There's defense in depth. So it's not a lost cause. I just, I just wanted to make the point that uh, in a lot of cases, we humans are, are always the weakest link. All right. So before we quit, I got to give you the details on the free book giveaway. So here's how you can score your free copy of How to Catch a Fish by Nick Oles. So I'm just going to actually kind of quickly paraphrase his post on LinkedIn. There's a link in the show notes for this. I've made a nice shortened link version of it because the real link is really crazy long. Uh, if you go to fdsd.me, my little personal URL shortener, if you go to fdsd.me slash catch a fish, and that's all lowercase, and fish, of course, is spelled with a PH, not an F. If you go there, that will take you right to his LinkedIn post with all the details, but I'll summarize them quickly for you here. Uh, they're going to give away five copies of the book. Uh, you have until October 15th, which is about two weeks, to enter to win. And the way you enter to win, first of all, you follow Nick on LinkedIn. So if you've done this already, you're set. If not, you'll need to follow him on LinkedIn. And I will put a link to his LinkedIn profile uh, in the show notes as well. Or obviously, if you follow that you know, catch a fish link, it'll take you right to his post, which will bring you right to his account. Once you are following Nick, then you need to uh, message Nick about the book or the podcast, or maybe post something publicly about the, the podcast or the book, tag Nick so he make to make sure he sees that. Could be feedback on the interview, could be feedback on the book, could be some interesting fishing stories, you know, whatever you want, just make some sort of a post to make sure you tag Nick. And then once uh, all the people have done that uh, at the, the end of the period of October 15th, uh, Nick will go through and pick the lucky winners and let you know, and they will send you a free copy of the book. So again, that's fdsd.me slash catch a fish. 
All right, everybody, that's it for this week. Uh, we'll have another new show for next week. Then I believe the next interview will be Andy N from Proton. I just interviewed Corey Doctorow, which was a really fun interview. That won't be coming up soon. I've got an interview with uh, the CEO and the COO, the two co-founders of iVerify coming up. Just some great stuff. So I would highly recommend you subscribe to the podcast and that way you won't miss any of that. So take care, everybody. That's going to do it for this week. Stay safe out there. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>